0: Thank you, Pastor Kyle. What time is bedtime in your house? I think we'll all come over to hear some, (laughs) some Langley stories, right? There's more. I love those kind of stories. It's amazing how our, when we hear a story, right? And all of a sudden we're drawn in. Well, how can you explain this? Human beings. It's human beings that do that, not, not animals. This shows that we're created for hearing the Logos, the word of God. And God wants to speak to us today. I believe that with all of our hearts. Well, um, I have another story to tell you. Uh, imagine, imagine the day when we can once again be in mass gatherings, even beyond what we're able to do today as a church, and we can go into some stadium or arena, and we can watch maybe our four favorite sports hero or listen to a concert. That's going to be great, isn't it? I mean, we're going to get back to that day. I, I really believe that. Well, Imagine that that day comes and one of your best friends or one of your loved ones is actually there on the sports field. And um, maybe, it's, maybe it's something really like, high level, like the Olympics. One of your family members gets to be in the Olympics or a professional sport. Well, I knew a mother whose son, um, he played Division I basketball in college in the United States and um, her, her, uh, her family were really excited about that and so she and her husband, um, her son's dad, they actually went down to visit and watch this game and the game was an away game. It was with the visitors. So they were entering this arena. It was very hostile and everyone was cheering against her son's team. Well, Halfway through the game, his, her son is tripped by another player. And the crowd yells out, jumps to their feet, and she hears another woman yell, yell these words. Stop on his head! Now what would you do if that was your son? If that was your brother or sister that was on the floor? Would you say nothing? Would you immediately be mad? Well, this mother said these words. She stood up with tears and said, That's my son! And all of a sudden, everybody got quiet. Their perspective changed. When they understood that it was not just an object of scorn, but that was another human being that was laying there on the floor. Well, today I want to help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to have our perspective change and how we treat other people and how we see others. And I believe this message will be helpful for all of us here today who are followers of Jesus Christ and also for those listening online. We had uh, 151 cars that came through our candy lane to get some candy yesterday. And um, it was awesome. And, and thank you to the Robinsons. Thank you to Shelby and Elizabeth and all their great work. Thank you. And, and in each of those bags of candy that we gave, there was a card. And an encourage people to tune in uh, and to come to our, our services. And so maybe there's some here today who are listening for the very first time. And I want to tell you that this message is also for you. This message will help you as we encourage people to have their perspective changed. Um, in fact, I know one young man who we ever got to share the gospel with, according, because Pat Bruckner was so bold, and I just was so proud of her. But here's what I want to ask you today. What impresses God? What impresses God? Maybe this week you were like, I'd really like to know the answer to that question. It sounds like a pretty important question. What What? What, uh, what impresses God? Now, now, some of you might be working really hard to impress God. You're doing all sorts of things. You're trying to serve Him, and you're trying to impress God, and um, you're hoping that someday, when you die, that God will let you into heaven because of all the things that you've done to impress God. There's others of you, you know, you don't even care. You don't even care about impressing God because you're not even sure He exists. So why would I be wanting to impress him? And then there's others of you who are struggling to impress God because you're like, I have done so much wrong. I have so much shame. I have so much guilt. I I don't think I could ever impress God. If you find yourself in one of those categories today, I want to encourage you, and and we're going to find help from God's Word. If you have your Bibles, please turn to... Zechariah chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. And we're going to find out the answer to this question What impresses God? And I'm hoping as we read uh, this passage and then as we listen to God's word, that God will change our perspective. Okay? So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. I believe it's on the screen as well. You can look this up, Google it, put it on your smartphone. Um, But please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read the whole chapter of Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah writes, In the fourth year of King Darius, he was the Persian king, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislef, that's the Jewish calendar. Now the people of Bethel had sent Shebazer, and Reggae Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I've done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And you, when you eat and when you drink, didn't you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words of the prophet proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the word, says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you defy... Devise evil against one another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. This is what he said. I, as I called, they would not hear. So they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro. And the present land was made desolate. Let's pray. God, would you now help us to know what it really means to impress you? Would you now add understanding to the reading of your word Lord, would you not uh, allow any part of the kingdom of darkness to snatch the word of truth from our hearts and minds, but instead would our hearts and minds find fertile soil for your gospel that we might bear fruit for your kingdom and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen and amen. You may be seated. Now we move on from these eight hopeful visions that Zechariah received during the night through the first Six chapters of Zechariah, and now we're starting a new series for the month of November talking about what true prosperity is about. The fact that if we return to God, there will be rewards from Him. And we're going to find this out as we, we tackle um, Zechariah verses 7 through 8. In, in our story here today, in Zechariah 7 1 through 14, we discover that the people of Bethel are returning to God. Now, you may wonder, the people of Bethel, what's what's so significant about the people of Bethel? Well, the people of Bethel were both, Bethel was a place of, of, it was very famous, and yet it was also infamous. So, why was Bethel famous? Well, it was, first of all, famous because that's where Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the Israelites, where he had a vision from God. And he had a vision of these angels going up and down a ladder. Before there was ever that, that famous song, Stairway to Heaven, it actually came from a vision, okay? And the vision was that um, there was a stairway from Heaven to Earth. And these angels came. And when, when um, Jacob uh, woke up from this vision, he called the place Bethel, which means House of God. Like, what a great name, right? Well, fast forward, this, this house of God, later on, um, became a place of gods, a house of gods. Bethel, originally, for Jacob in his life, really, the, he really changed his perspective. He was always a deceiver. He even deceived his family. That was why he was on the run from, from God and from his family, and he then ends up, after, after that vision, he actually marries the love of his life, Rachel, and he stops deceiving people, and people start deceiving him still, but he learns to start treating people with a lot more kindness. But fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, and we find that the place that was designated the house of God is, as I said, has now become the house of God's small g, Bethel became a place of idolatry and thus infamy. Look at what 1 Kings 12, verse 28 records. So the king, that's Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is a real big problem. Because if you recall, Jeroboam is, is now... Uh, leading the people into a double portion of sin. Remember when the Israelites were on Mount Sinai and they were waiting a long time on God? And so they said, well, we need to make a golden calf. They made one golden calf from all of the gold that they brought out of Egypt. And now Jeroboam, what's he doing? He's making two golden calves. This is like double whammy amount of sin. And so this place... It's called Bethel, where these, these two calves occur. And that time of wandering that the Israelites originally had became a place where God's like, eventually says, enough is enough. And he brings the ten northern tribes of, of Israel into exile. What a reminder that there may be places in our lives that at one time, we're we're so special where we met with God, where we had a change of perspective. It could be uh, you experienced a miracle. It could be a vision, and uh, and God uh, met you there. But be careful, because that place can become a place of idolatry too. We can enslave ourselves by going back to Egypt. Maybe it was a summer camp. You had uh, you had a great experience as a kid, and you you found Jesus there. Maybe it was a church, a Sunday school classroom. Maybe it was a club that you were a part of. And we, we, instead, of, instead of worshiping the person of Jesus Christ, we start worshiping the place where we met Jesus, where we met God. Has that ever happened in your life? You can be so consumed, and a building and a place can... Take too much prominence in your lives. As the Puritan John uh, Flavel wrote, The soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring the felt comforts of a Savior's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go silent in search of other lovers. And that's exactly what happened to Bethel. Bethel became a brothel for the affections of the people of God they worshiped many gods in Bethel. In fact, the last time we the second last time we hear about Bethel in the Old Testament is in 2nd Chronicles chapter 3 when King Abijah, he was the southern king, the king of Judah, has to go up and he fights against the northern kingdom and he is able to arrest Bethel from the hands of King Jeroboam. And this is what what um, we read that King Abijah says, it's damning. He says, whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are no gods. No gods. Uh, You catch that? The gods really don't matter. Much of our life is spent chasing after no gods. The last time we hear about Bethel in the Old Testament before this instance in Zechariah 7, is the same time period where Jeroboam was the king of Israel, and he's confronted by, by the prophet Amos. And this is what the Lord declares. He says this, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Bethel shall come to nothing <laughs> this summer. This summer, This summer, uh, my son was being recruited for baseball by a bunch of colleges up in uh, Minnesota. And um, one of those schools um, loves to quote this verse because Bethel was after, the place where I went to school was was coming after him. And they love to quote this verse out of context. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, right? They didn't want him to go to Bethel. Well, the prophet Amos was saying, you, you better watch out. Don't go to a place of idolatry. Don't go to that Bethel. That was about 240 years earlier than the time of Zachariah and the 10 northern tribes. They've been exiled. They have been exiled from the Assyrians. First of all, very wicked people. And then the Babylonians. And, and, and yet there's this remnant. Somehow there was this remnant, this small group of people who remained faithful to God. And we know this because this is the first time we hear about the, the Bethelites. In verse 2, it says, Now the people of Bethel had sent Shorazer Shere, and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. Like, this is amazing, right? The people of Bethel have survived all of this exile, and now they're entreating the favor of the Lord. They want to be prosperous. Sounds amazing. It gives us hope. Maybe today you, you can kind of relate to the people of Bethel. You've gone through isolation. You've remained faithful. You're here today, right? And you're like, I just want to entreat the favor of the Lord. Look what it says in verse 3. This is the question that they asked. Saying to the priests of the house of the Lord and of hosts and prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? In other words, the faith of people who survived all those exiles from the Assyrians and Babylonians that wanted to know from the Lord whether they should keep fasting. They've been fasting for 70 years, maybe longer. And now that now that all the people are returning to the promised land, they're like, well, you know what? Maybe it's time to stop fasting. And stop time to stop pray, uh, praying and seeking the Lord and entreating the favor of him through fasting. Maybe today we, as a church, have also experienced great provision, haven't we? God's provided for our building here. Is this a time to stop fasting, stop praying? I mean, don't you think, like, in this case, like it's 200 years they've survived. They've been faithful. Generation after generation believed when no one else believed in God. I think many of us would be very impressed with the discipline and faithfulness of those from Bethel, right? But here's the big question. Was God impressed? Was God impressed with the fasting from those from Bethel? Check out the answer. Look at verses 4 through 7. You see it? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat, when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the prophet proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with their cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? I mean, one of the things that God's teaching us right there is God always knows the motives of our hearts, doesn't he? He knows why we do things. We may, be, we may impress others, but do we impress God? And that's the most important question. Dr. Mark Boda explains it this way. There's no difference between those who fasted and those who feasted in the community for neither displayed true repentance. Did you hear that correctly? You, you can show all this amazing spiritual discipline and piety and fasting, and you can be no better off than the feasting. You can say, I knew it. That's why I love to feast, right? Give me some more dessert. Let me help to the seconds and thirds. Is that what God's saying? God's not against their spiritual disciplines. He wants us to do such things, but he's not impressed by it. In fact, we learned that our discipline might be actually disobedience. Is anybody thinking, like, okay, John, that's a little of a yikes statement? Does this not unnerve you to to read this? I mean, you're trying to pray and you give and fast and come to church and do all these things, and you're telling me that, that God isn't impressed? That's what I'm saying. Let me explain further. Dr. Walter Kaiser reminds us this truth. God had only commanded his people to fast one day a year. The day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. We read about this in Leviticus chapter 26 and other places in Leviticus. Only one day. So what's happening here? The people of Bethel have fasted adding four more days. And so this is true. We religionists often fail to get it straight. We either go overboard on one side or on the other. And it might not seem like it's a big deal to add to God's word, but it really is because it actually shows a lack of trusting him. We think God is not good enough, which is for the first lie we ever bought into with the devil. Did God really say? And then he's adding to what God said. Couldn't eat. There's only one tree that you could not eat from. She's adding to that in Genesis 3. You check that out. Fast forward to Zechariah 7.5 and we find as Pastor John Thompson comments, The sacred act of fasting went from a communal act of intercession for repentance to an opportunity for spiritual self-promotion. Fasting became the ancient religious Instagram selfie moment to draw attention to us as a people rather than to God. And that's the danger of these spiritual disciplines. We can so easily add these things to our lives. Here's the first action that really impresses God. It's really, really simple. Simple obedience. Nothing more, nothing less. Simple obedience to God's word. Sometimes in our zeal, we add more to what God has called us to do. Recall Jesus Had the hardest time with the Pharisees who added rules, right? They added all these man made rules. And, And here's the kicker by putting a fence around God's law, we keep ourselves out, ironically. It's really dangerous to go beyond what God tells us to do. If the people of Bethel would have just obeyed God by fasting one day a year and doing it with the right motives, then they would have been pleased. God would have been pleased with them. We read in Isaiah 58 that this was a problem really from the beginning. In Isaiah 58, the people asked God another question. This was 200 years earlier. And they asked this question. They wanted to know, you know, why is there seeming to be no justice in the land? No rendering of true judgments? Why is there no revival? Boy, doesn't that sound like our day? We don't have a lot of justice in our land. We, we have been praying for revival. Well, here's the problem. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have you, we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day... Uh, Of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked and to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? We can be like, I'm just... Trying to follow Jesus and fast. And we get really grumpy and unkind. And we're like, I'm fasting from my Halloween candy, like I said. I hadn't had any Halloween candy. There was brownies made this week. I haven't touched them this morning. Hope I'm not going to be grumpy. Right? (laughs) Trying to avoid my family. These are the prophecies. These are the prophecies that the people were warned about 200 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun, right? What impressed God was just through simple obedience. Simple obedience. Nothing more, nothing less. What's God telling you to do? Do it. Do it quickly. This leads us to the second action that impresses God. It's really simple, too. It's this. Kindness kindness toward one another it's explicit look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7 Zechariah the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying thus says the Lord of hosts render true judgments show kindness and mercy to one another do not oppress the widow the fatherless the sojourner the poor and let none of you devise evil against another in their heart pursuing the truth and caring for others is what impresses God it comes from the heart of God Listen up, God cares about you. He cares about you. And because he cares about you, you should care for others. It gets really specific. And here's some like action points really specific that you say oh, not oppressing the widow, the fatherless, the, the the alien, the immigrant, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. If you come across somebody who's an orphan or a widow, or the poor, or an immigrant. Those are specific ways this week where you can show kindness. I bet God will let you bump into one of those people this week. Out of his great love. Today you may not believe in Jesus, but one of the great takeaways is you can be kind. I know, I know everybody today with all of the plagues and all of the, the stress that we have in our world it doesn't It feel like we're in almost like an elastic and sometimes our elastic we're not able to absorb all of the heartache that we once did in fact it's like those old elastics that start to get brittle and they, they break that's what we're feeling like but with the Lord's strength we can be kind he did not call us to rise up and Fight one another. I would encourage you to reconsider believing in God. Now, why? Because persevering kindness comes from God and from God alone. You might know many people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ but who are not kind. And that sadly might be true. However, a lack of, of kindness by us Christians does not negate the truth that kindness comes from God. Listen to these words by the theologian Mirsa Volf, who grew up in war-torn Croatia. He saw the genocide in the the Balkans and, and knew the physical and emotional toll of vengeance and retaliation cycles. And this is what he said, I quote, People enact vengeance on other people, not because they believe in God's judgment, but because they don't. If there's no God and therefore no judgment day, then human beings have nowhere to go with pain that has been inflicted upon them by others. If there's no God and no judgment, our only options are to suffer the injury of injustice on our own or to fight back in its retaliation. Whichever route we choose, the results are tragic and ultimately devastating. Only belief in God who will come to judge the living and the dead will enable believers to stop the cycle of violence and to entrust others to the one who judges justly as Jesus said. If there's anybody listening, in a time where it's very volatile and I'm speaking just for a second because I have pastored in the United States. This week, I am so concerned about violence. Would there instead be a a focus back to God, that God is the God of vengeance, and that we can leave up to Him any hardship, personally, corporately, any part of our lives? I think this explains two very disturbing trends in our society. The first is called the cancel culture. And I'm defining that term now from a political standpoint. The cancel culture is as soon as someone is found out to have morally failed, then we try to get rid of everything about them. We just dismiss them. We act as if they never existed. And the first time I saw the cancel culture was a few years ago, um, when the uh, Penn State University tried to get rid of their longtime coach Joe Paterno, um, his legacy, and they took down statues because he did not do enough. He ignored the fact that his assistant coach Jerry Sandusky was abusing children, and especially boys. And so they got rid of his statue, Joe Paterno's, and 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 that we've seen that trend. And here in Canada, right? We've got rid of uh, the first Prime Minister of Canada's statue, John A. Macdonald, because of his policies that were uh, were racist in regards to First Nations and Asian people. That was wrong, those policies. But here's the thing. It is evolutionary, naturalistic thinking that thinks that we can get rid of these, all of the, the sin by just canceling it. If we don't, if we think we don't exist beyond this life, and if so, if somebody does something heinous, then we can just wipe the memory from their, their life and, that, and then it won't carry on. But here's the thing, we are created in God's image. And because we're created in God's image, we will exist. And we, we're still talking about people's names, aren't we? That have done wrong. And here's the thing, every one of us has done wrong. Thank God that we have not been canceled. There is none perfect here. Anybody perfect? Good. Because I would have called you back up here to preach because I don't deserve to be up here then. <laughs> God's discipline may result in his appropriate use of anger, but it's not annihilation. Remember, it's God's Kindness that leads us to repentance, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So some just think, well, we'll just cancel everybody. And they do wrong. No grace. There's no grace anymore. And then the other side is, the response is what I call passivity or indifference. This follows the advice maybe your parents told you. If you can't say something nice, then what? And here's the thing, we just emphasize the last part, so we're not even saying anything nice, and we're not saying anything at all. This, actually, truism should motivate us to be kind towards one another. Many are in our culture just ignoring one another. Now, can I just say something to you as one of your pastors? I heard back from some of my staff and some of my leaders this week that and maybe I'm preaching the choir here, but maybe it's those out uh, online. At times we try to call you and we're not getting any response. And I always tell my kids that one of the rudest things you can do is ignore somebody, right? Hey, you know what? I just want you to know, we're calling because we love you. We're checking in and we're actually accountable for your souls. So could you let us know how you're doing? Because we really want to hear from you. And and if somebody's trying to contact you once one another, that's one ways that you can respond is just be kind by by not ignoring them. We're committed to to you with compassion and courage and consistency. We'd love to hear from you. We're a family. Don't give one another the cold shoulder. In fact. Look at verses 11 through 14, and that's what we find. What's really devastating is God experienced the cold shoulder from his own people. Look at this. But but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. It's like that cold shoulder. And stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And here's what he says, As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Literally, they offered a recusant Or unwilling and rebellious shoulder. And instead of serving Jehovah with a a glad and joyful heart. And and leaning on the Lord whose burden is light. In summary the Israelites gave the cold shoulder to God. And they, they plugged their ears. And they made their hearts really hard toward God. And his loving protective rules. And, of course, got, got angry about that. And since they didn't listen to God's cries, God, stopped listening to their cries. And eventually they were scattered all over the earth until they started listening again. Now, some of you may say, well, this all comes down to fasting. So, John, you're calling and, and, the, and the elders are calling us as a church to a 30-day prayer and fasting. you tell me how bad fasting is and the, the dangers and the pitfalls from it? Like you're shooting yourself in the foot, right? Well, you should know by now that the fasting for our benefit doesn't impress God. And doing more than asked doesn't impress God. And doing what we've always done doesn't impress God. Celebrating and eating for ourselves also doesn't impress God. What impresses God is simple obedience and kindness towards others, including rendering true judgments. And so should we still fast? Yeah. I encourage you. Grab one of these uh, 30 days of prayer and fasting guide as you leave. You can, you can pick one up online through our, our email and through our, our, um, our website. And here's what God wants us to do. Instead of fasting for ourselves, we're fasting to God. And we even use that money that we're saving for the food that we spend. I spend way too much money on food. And we give that to those who are in need. We have a lot of people who have given. And thank you so much for those who have given to the food bank. How much more we could do, right, this month as we seek God in prayer. The people of Bethel thought it was a new day. It's time to stop fasting. Well, I want to tell you, beloved, that it is a new day. But it is a time to to fast. It's a time to seek the Lord. If we don't focus on God, we will be eaten alive. Listen to these words that Frederick Buechner profoundly writes. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of better a bitter confirmation still to come, to savor the last to some morsel so before the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Instead of impressing God, we can destroy ourselves, but it doesn't have to be that way. It is a new day. The renewal of Jerusalem gave the people another chance to to have a society full of justice and love and a care to bring the light of God into the world. And at Temple, we are being renewed and have a chance to reset and, and exhibit justice and kindness to others. And if anyone should exhibit kindness, shouldn't it be the church? What we have to do is have our perspective change. Like that mother that I told you about at the beginning who overcame those violent taunts by shouting cries. Today I want to remind you that God is standing up. See, at one time people, and we would have joined in with that crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. But God the Father is also standing up saying, that was my son. And he lived in simple obedience to me for you. And he was kind towards you because he loves you. He died for you. He rose from the grave for you. Now impress me by following him. Obey me and be kind to one another. Let's pray. God, may we be kind. May we be obedient to you. We know we can't even do that at all unless we do it in the power and strength of your son, Jesus Christ. So as your people, we come. May we need to repent of our attempts to impress you. Maybe we need to come to the conclusion that we actually do believe in you and that we've been trying to take justice into our own, act, in our own hands. And now we hand that person, that problem, back to you. Lord, whatever it is, God, would you now help us to be kind, care for the poor, the widows, the orphans, render true judgments, and not devise any evil in our hearts. We can only do so through the power of your Holy Spirit. We do so for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. God's people said, amen.